Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and today I want to share what is the greatest gift that God has given my family over this past year, which is Bluey. Y'all, Bluey. Oh, my daughter's favorite, favorite TV show. For those who don't know, Bluey is an Australian kids show about a family of dogs comprised of a mom, a dad, and two kids around the ages of four and six, where each episode is about seven-ish minutes long and is essentially a vignette of their everyday life, usually depicting creative play. And it's wonderful, it's moving, it's hilarious, it's the only kids show that I watch by myself. It is like a cold <laughs> glass of water delivered into my body after 40 years of wandering in the desert of mindless children's media like Coco Melon. Can I get an amen? I love Bluey so much. It is better than anything I have seen. And that's largely because, better than any kid's show, it layers humor so that simultaneously, in the exact same moment, there's always a joke for Audie that she finds hilarious and another deeper one that's all for me, usually relating to the absurdities of parenting toddlers. <laughs> it just makes me feel so seen as a parent. <laughs> Which means, and this is what I love about the show, Audie and I are always laughing at the same moment, even if it's for different reasons. It's not like there's this thing that she doesn't get that happens outside of the thing she does. Instead, it happens at the same time. It is perfectly layered, and it is such a delight. And watching Bluey really got me thinking this week about something that most people have experienced in their lives. And that is where, as adults, we return to stories from our childhood only to discover that they had way more going on than we ever realized as kids. I think for folks my age, I often hear this is true for movies like Ferngully and Spirited Away, these movies that were these animated films where as kids they were just these fantastical visual treats and then you come back to them as adults and you're like, holy crap, these movies are exploring themes that cover everything from like late stage capitalism <laughs> to environmental conservation. And they just kind of blow your mind. Has anyone been there before? And I think for me, the most recent one, most recent example of this was actually the Pixar film Ratatouille. Now, stop. <laughs> I am not proud of this. Yes, you are. But I am re <laughs> I really am not. But I am recorded on a movie podcast saying that Ratatouille is Pixar's weakest and most shallow movie. <laughs> Which is a terrible take. I know that now, okay? Okay? Can you guys forgive me? This is a church. Come on. The problem was that I saw Ratatouille as a teen. And in my teenage angst, I shrugged it off completely as a simplistic, mindless kids movie about a rat that makes spaghetti, right? And that's a take I held for literally years. This is what I thought this movie was. That is, until this year when I revisited it for the first time with my daughter, Audie. And holy smokes, y'all. This movie is so good. Who here loves Ratatouille? I mean, it shattered every notion I had about this film. Coming back to it as an adult, I realized that in reality, it is a profound reflection on prejudice, as well as the relationship between art, creativity, 
and criticism and how these things can bleed into each other and really divert us from our calling to make beauty in this world. It's such a cool movie. And I repent in sackcloth and ashes, okay? <laughs> Please do not crucify me after the gathering. But we've all had a story like this, one that for years was shaped in our minds by when we were introduced to it by what developmental stage we were at, by whether or not we were ready for what it had to say. And usually that impacted how we thought of it in terms of its quality, its depth, its meaning, what it has to say about us as human beings. And I think what's fascinating is that I find that this is most true with stories from the Bible. Theologian T. Mackey calls this the Veggie Tales phenomenon where many of us got introduced to Bible stories through vegetables. Really, I, tangent, I'm not a huge fan of VeggieTales, we'll talk about that later. More so, we got introduced to these stories through children's media, right? Which, by necessity, simplified them. Because they had to, it's for kids. And this usually meant that what they did was they took this story and they overemphasized one really exciting element from it and then boiled down its message to teach some very simplistic moral truth, like be kind to people. Anyone been there? The book of Daniel, right? It's about lions and trusting God. Track it with me so far. And this isn't inherently bad, unless it's Veggie Tales, but again, we'll talk about that another time. It's not inherently bad unless we never return to these stories again as adults. Because if we don't, what happens is they become stories that we think we know, when in reality, we've never actually digested their full message at all. We've never even really been presented with it. In other words, without returning to these stories with fresh eyes, they're like Ratatouille was for me simplistic, nice, tame in our recollection, in our minds, rather than stories that reveal complex truths about God, ourselves, and our world. Truths that we spend our entire lives missing without even really realizing. And it's actually that revisiting that's going to direct us in our new series, Note, where we are going to return with fresh eyes to what I believe is the biggest victim of Veggie Tales, and that is the Old Testament story of Jonah, the book of Jonah. For many, I think Jonah is the perfect example of this. Who'd say that you are familiar with Jonah's story? Raise your hand. And what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Jonah? Jonah and the what? The whale. The whale. Am I right? Except for the fact that a big fish only appears in Jonah for two sentences of a four-chapter book, y'all. Jonah's not about a whale. In fact, to think that it's about a whale, I would posit for you over the course of the series is to misunderstand one of the strangest and I think most insightful biblical books in the entire canon. A book that reveals crucial, unexpected aspects of God's character and carries a provocative message for God's people in any generation. And that's what I hope to rediscover over the course of this next month. However, before we get into the text of Jonah, we need to sit with the book itself. 
because it's quite frankly as unique and as strange as they come in the Bible. Now, where Jonah falls in the scriptures is not complicated. That's actually pretty clear. It's considered a book of the prophets. And if you're new to the Bible, the prophets were these Old Testament figures who get commissioned by God to be messengers to his people. Essentially, they appear when Israel rejects its calling to reflect God's character to the world, embracing idolatry and injustice or violence. And God commissions them in love to go to his people and to call them to change course, to return to who God called them to be. In this job title, actually goes a long way in directing how these books are formed. This messenger job shapes the structure of the prophetic books, creating within them a very set formula for how they are constructed. You see, each includes a brief narrative about who the prophet was, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then when they were working, when they were doing this messenger job. And this introduction is then followed by chapters upon chapter of dense, poetic sermons that contain the content of God's specific message that he is speaking through this specific prophet. All to say, if you've read your Bible, then you're meant to enter Jonah with these things called expectations, which always are a good thing to have. Am I right? <laughs> you're meant to start it thinking, ah, a prophetic book. I know where this is going. This dude Jonah is going to get commissioned by God to deliver a message, which he'll definitely do, and its content will then comprise the majority of the book that follows. Are y'all tracking with me on this? See, this is really critical to understand because the author of Jonah knows that you have these expectations, and he has one goal in mind over the course of this book, and that is to blow them to smithereens because what he does is he intentionally aims to upend every expectation that you have entirely. Though Jonah begins following this prophetic formula precisely, it then immediately diverts from it in huge, cataclysmic ways. For one, unlike every other prophetic book, Jonah includes almost zero content from God's message. This is interesting. Instead of sharing God's word spoken through the prophet to his people, God's word to his people comes through a story about a prophet. More so, Jonah provides no historical information, dates, or named characters except for Jonah at all, which is incredibly strange, y'all. Every other prophetic book is full of these little hyperlinks, these little pieces of information that are meant to ground it in Israel's larger history, Israel's larger story, when the prophet was working, who he was speaking to, at what time in this biblical narrative he shows up on behalf of God. There are timestamps, there are named figures, not in Jonah, not a single one, which has produced some, I'll be honest, very heated debate over how to read Jonah. Some argue that despite these oddities, it's still meant to be read as a literal history while others argue that it's actually meant to be a historical parable. That is an allegorical story using a figure from Israel's history that isn't really meant to be literal. Now, to be clear, both of these histories and parables appear throughout the scriptures. All to say, you're not a heretic regardless of what take you have, which is probably not what you've heard from other people. Both of these are valid forms of storytelling in the Bible. Personally, I believe it's a parable. But here's the thing, regardless of which view you hold, Jonah's biggest diversion from the other prophetic books 
remains the same. And that is its totally unique and bizarre genre. You see, Jonah is clearly written, whether you think it's literal or a parable, in this genre of literature that today we would call satire. I assume that all of you have at least at one point in your life consumed a satire. Don Quixote, Dr. Strangelove, The Simpsons, am I right? We all know of a satire. The list goes on and on. It's one of the oldest genres in human history. Broadly speaking, though, satire uses humor, irony, and hyperbole to critique a society's foibles or vices, which it achieves by placing these tropes, these archetypal figures, from said society into exaggerated situations that, through absurdity and comedy, expose their worldview, beliefs, or actions as ridiculous or flawed. But here's the critical thing about good satire. Because this can feel really mean-spirited. That is, until you realize that its goal is not to convey facts about real-life people or characters. No, no, no. The goal of good satire is that it wants to be a mirror for you, the reader. The goal of good satire is to get behind its audience's defenses by getting us laughing at someone else. What an idiot that Homer Simpson is. All before revealing that said ridiculous character is in fact just an exaggerated version of us. Transforming its jokes about those people into revelations about our flawed characters. Challenging us in spaces that we most try to protect. It's the power of these stories. They get us laughing and then we go, oh crap, that's about me. I'm Homer Simpson at times in my life. Are you tracking with me so far? That's the goal of good satire. And y'all, that's what Jonah is all about. Over the next five weeks, we're going to see that it repeatedly takes these characters loaded with stereotypes. It places them into ludicrous situations in which they will shatter every expectation we have for them hilariously, frying every circuit breaker in our brains, all for the purpose of getting behind our defenses and subversively revealing hard truths about us as God's people in light of a transformative, radical, dare I say scandalous, portrait of who our God is. Y'all, if you can't tell, I am so hyped for this journey. This is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. Who's ready? Come on, who's ready? Let's go. Jonah, Jonah, I'm just kidding. Do not do that. <laughs> for today, we're going to cover just the opening three verses, which set up Jonah's main character, and then what we're going to see are the central themes of the story. So we pick up in verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. What a line. But as you can see, this is the very standard opening for any of the prophetic books. A prophet gets commissioned by God to deliver a message. And who is the prophet today? Jonah, son of Amittai. An intentionally chosen name by the author. Let me tell you why. You see, in Hebrew, Jonah means dove, a symbol for purity. And Amittai means faithfulness. So who is our main character? 
purity, son of faithfulness. What a name. This guy's got to be pretty holy, am I right? Hold that thought, though, because this name is also one of those references to another Old Testament story about a character with, shall I say, an interesting reputation. You see, Jonah also appears one other point in Scripture, and that is in 2 Kings 14, where God sends him as a messenger to this guy, King Jeroboam II, who is one of Israel's most wicked kings. And it's an odd story, because in it, what we find is that Jonah actually prophesies favorably for Jeroboam II, prophesying that he'll regain territory that Israel had lost to its pagan neighbors. Now, already... Dapping up literally the worst king ever isn't the best thing to be known for as a prophet in the Old Testament, right? But what if I told you that it actually gets worse? Because what we find several books later is that a little bit down the road, the prophet Amos comes around and actually undoes Jonah's prophecy. He comes up behind Jonah and says, no, 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 no. This wicked king, that's not gonna happen. And what we find is the prophet Amos warns Jeroboam that if he does not turn to God, he does not change course, he is going to lose all these things that Jonah prophesied favorably for him. And that is exactly what happens. Jeroboam's family rejects God, and it goes to war with this place called the Assyrian Empire, hold that thought, who reconquers their territory, wipes out Jeroboam's family, and takes Israel into exile. So I want you to imagine, you're an Israelite reader. How do you feel about Jonah as a character in your Bible? Not super great, right? You're at least a little dubious about this dude known for making positive nationalistic predictions for wicked kings that God ultimately comes around in reverses. Am I right? He's certainly not the most awesome prophet in Israel's history. Let's just leave it at that. So everyone got Jonah in their mind? Pure, faithful Jonah? Okay. Who's he sent to deliver God's message to? Does anyone remember? Nineveh, hmm, another interesting choice. What empire was Nineveh the capital of, do you think? The Assyrian Empire, huh. Now understand, Assyria was the most savage military empire in Israel's world. Archaeologists have actually discovered Assyrian murals that memorialize their conquest of Israel, which depict the strategy that they would use when besieging a city, where they'd skin and impale captured enemy soldiers alive uh, and then place them around the city so that you could always look out from your little trapped town and see your friends butchered all around you. Nice people, right? Think they're good guys or bad guys? Bad guys. So again, my Israelite readers, do you like Nineveh? No. They're the enemy. They're the epitome of all that has gone wrong, all that God opposes in his good world. In other words, what I would want you to consider is that this opening is great news for you as an Israelite reader. God has finally sent a prophet to confront Assyria over the injustice and the misery that they have caused to your people and to this world. But it's also our first taste of Jonah's ironic humor because who was used to conquer Israel in reversing Jonah's prophecy? The Assyrians, whose capital is what? Nineveh. In other words, God sends Jonah to the capital of the empire that undermined his prophetic career. God's got a sense of humor, am I right? 
But this is it. This is the story. This is how Jonah's author sets up the tale that's going to follow. God commissions Jonah, the most pure and faithful prophet, to go to Nineveh, confront these wicked enemies on God's behalf, and demand that they turn from their evil ways. Huzzah! Am I right? Who's pumped up? Let's go, God! Let me ask you, according to that prophetic book formula, what should come next? Jonah should do that, am I right? (laughs) Jonah should go to Nineveh, deliver God's message, whose content will comprise the rest of this book in these poetic sermons. But, verse three, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So what does pure, faithful prophet Jonah do? He immediately bolts in the exact opposite direction. I want to show you this. I want to show you on a map. Okay, so Jonah's around Joppa, right? If you look a little bit up to the right, there's Nineveh. That's about 500 miles away. And then if you go all the way to the left, you find Tarshish, which is about 2,500 miles away. Let me ask you a question. Does Jonah intend to go to Nineveh? No, (laughs) no, 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 nope. In fact, Tarshish at this time in Hebrew literature represented the end of the world, the last known stop before you go off the cliff into oblivion. (laughs) Pure, faithful prophet Jonah literally flees to the ends of the earth to avoid going to where God has told him to go. He just says, Nope, I'm out. Yo, this is hilarious, right? You can imagine kind of like a laugh track playing underneath this scene, like a little Seinfeld, like that bass line. This is comedy. I cannot overemphasize how insane this is. In the entire Bible, the whole thing, Jonah is the only prophet who flat runs from God, which is obviously bonkers. Jonah knows scripture? Do you think Jonah actually believes there's a place where the God of the universe cannot find him? No. This is delusional. Something has snapped inside of Jonah's mind and heart at this request. In other words, he has lost his marbles. And the question that we're meant to ask, the author wants us to ask, is a simple one. Why? Why? Does Jonah run? That's a really interesting question to think about. Because if you, like me, first learned about Jonah through the God-forsaken veggie tales, that wonderful fruit or whatever they are, then your answer is probably pretty simple, right? It's that he was afraid. Anyone else that we've heard about old Jonah, pure faithful Jonah? Which makes sense. Kids get fear overemphasizing a lesson on overcoming our fear is a good lesson for children. It's actually really easy to read fear into Jonah's story, since, you know, the Ninevites had this pesky habit of skidding Israelites alive. But here's the thing. Jonah never once says that he runs because he's afraid. That is not in the text. You can go home, read all four chapters of this book. That never appears even once. 
In fact, Jonah himself provides only one insight into why he ran, and it's at the very end of this story. You see, and, and spoiler alert, I guess don't come back for the rest of the series. <laughs> spoiler alert, eventually Jonah reluctantly goes to Nineveh and gives literally the worst sermon ever to about half the city. But despite this, everyone in Nineveh repents. The people, the king, even the cows, I'm not even making that up, even the cows <laughs> repent. Everyone repents. Everyone humbles themselves, worship God, commits to changing, and guess what God does? He forgives them, because of course he does. That's who God is, right? It's a funny, but also beautiful, unexpected conclusion to this strange story. This entire city, utterly opposed to God, receives his grace and changes course. That's beautiful, am I right? And we'd expect Jonah to be thrilled, right? I mean, mission accomplished. Talk about crushing the whole prophet thing. However, let's read how Jonah responds. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed what? Very wrong. And he became what? Angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to be dead than to live. Is Jonah thrilled that his mission was successful? No! He's furious. He's so angry. He's so mad. He wants to die. And he says exactly why he fled. Was it fear? No. It's because he knew God's character and that somehow God would extend love and grace to Nineveh. Simply put, Jonah runs because he's an Israelite nationalist who hates Ninevites and wants no part in his enemies receiving God's redemption. Jonah says nope because he'd rather flee than follow a God who is in the business of loving those people. That's messed up, right? And that's just a foretaste of what we're going to find throughout Jonah. Pure, faithful Jonah. The stand-in for God's people, the character that we expect to be the good guy, the hero, is by far the worst, most faithless person in this entire story. He's the essence of the clown meme, where every single chapter, Jonah is going to put on another piece of his little clown costume, all the while thinking that he is totally in the right. And everyone else, everyone else, the pagan sailors, the wicked king, even the cows, are going to get what God's about in his world better than Jonah does. It's hilarious. You can laugh. That's funny, right? It's funny. And over the course of the series, we're going to laugh at Jonah a lot. He's Homer Simpson. What an idiot. What a clown. And we're supposed to. I believe the author of Jonah wants us to. Because that's the trap of great satire. Because if we humbly let it behind our defenses, then, like a good mirror, guess what Jonah's going to do? 
it's going to reveal that we are, in fact, Jonah a lot of times in this life. Because who is Jonah when you get down to it, when you really get down to it? He's just an arrogant religious person with a worldview that God challenges, which he cannot take because he's fed resentment, pride, tribalism, apathy, pettiness, hate, and self-righteousness so deeply. He's become so invested in his self-centered vision of what's right. His small, egocentric ways of thinking about God and the enemy that he's become blind to who God really is, what God wants to really do in his world. He's become so invested in his own little narrative that he would rather see the world, hear me on this, he would rather see the world stay broken than change his own heart, than change his own worldview, than let God break some of his beliefs. And I mean, thank goodness that's not relatable today. Am I right? Thank God this ancient story isn't about me. Yo, that's us. We are all at times Jonah. And Jonah is trying to be God's mirror to us. We so easily get into this mode where we check off our religious boxes while thinking that this frees us from letting Jesus confront the pockets of our worldview, our attitudes, our relationships that are quite frankly antithesis to who God calls us to be as his people. So much so that when God does come along and he says, oh, love your enemy, he challenges them. We say, nope. Anyone else been there before? We just don't want to hear it. Jesus, I'll give you my Sunday, but extend dignity and grace to my enemies. Love those Democrats. Love those Republicans. Yeah, that's going to be a no for me, dog. We've all done this. I know that I have. It's okay. And we can self-justify it. We can think that this doesn't matter because I tied this week. But here's the truth. With this story, what this author wants you to get that in such moments, we become Jonah, bolting for Tarshish, forsaking our God-given calling and advocate even the opportunity to participate in his work to heal his good world. And that's a tough pill to swallow. But if we're willing to humbly find ourselves within Jonah like the cows do, then what we're also going to find over these next five weeks is that it's medicine for us. It is medicine for what ails us, for what has broken our world. Because Jonah's more than, uh, it's about more than just a whale, y'all. It's about a God with a sense of humor, who's committed to ending injustice and hate, who works through imperfect people and loves those we call enemies. A God who shatters human prejudice with this scandalous grace that includes us, our Ninevites, the cows, and everything in between. That's Jonah. And that's where we're going to go over the course of this series. So, with that in mind, as we head into worship and we head out into the world, I would just want to invite you, everyone here, including myself, to reflect on some hard questions that Jonah's going to ask us over the coming weeks. I think first it's going to ask us, who are our Ninevites? And do you accept the hard truth that God loves them as much as he loves you? It's going to ask us, where have you said nope and fled from being the kind of person that God calls his people to be in this world? 
It's going to ask us, where do you need to hear that God can work through your imperfections if we are willing to be humble and maybe change? Not out of fear, but so that you don't miss the amazing things that God wants to do through you because you're just so hateful and stuck in your ways. And above all, I think it's going to ask us, where do we, each of us, need to hear the word of God spoken through this comedic story about a faithless, rebellious prophet Jonah, not just so we can laugh at him, so that God might sneak past our defenses and get the Jonah out of us. That's the invitation in this book. And y'all, that's good news. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's worship.